Hi, this is Connor Hibbert, WICB's Jazz and Specialty Music Director. You're tuned into Out to Lunch, where we'll dive into two prominent albums from all your favorite genres. Today on Out to Lunch, we'll examine the folk rock sensibilities of two of the most influential albums of their time, Bringing It All Back Home by Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. Recorded at a time when folk music was evolving rapidly, both of these albums controversially moved away from traditional folk arrangements, embracing elements of blues, pop, world music, and most of all, rock and roll. These ambitious albums were not well received by many who preferred the quiet, beauteous simplicity of folk music, but their permutations of the genre marked these as landmark albums in the development of folk rock. On July 25, 1965, at the famed Newport Folk Festival, Bob Dylan performed his first-ever electric concert, backed by members of the Butterfield Blues Band. Many in attendance revolted against the unexpected electric infusion, though there are conflicting accounts as to why. In the 2005 documentary No Direction Home, Pete Seeger claims that the feedback from Dylan's microphone was distorting his lyrics and caused the audience to boo while many others backstage claimed that Seeger was furious that Dylan had strayed from the more traditional folk arrangements. Whatever the reason, Dylan's set has gone down as one of the most infamous in live music history, though his foray into a blues rock style was not without precedent. About four months earlier, Dylan had released Bringing It All Back Home, a record that delved headfirst into surrealist lyrics and embraced an electric backing band on its first side. A daring record that set the stage for future folk rock releases by Dylan and his contemporaries, Bringing It All Back Home's cover fittingly features Dylan posed next to, in part, a fallout shelter sign, perhaps an unintentional warning of the controversy that would follow this album for years to come. On previous editions of Out to Lunch, I've discussed the importance of an album's opening song, as it sets the tone for the rest of the release. In the case of Subterranean Homesick Blues, the track was not only responsible for introducing the album, but introducing Dylan's electric era as well. Fortunately, the song more than lives up to its billing, blending typically abstract lyrical concepts with social commentary, a tight vocal cadence, and a delightful country blues guitar to create one of the most enduring and iconic tracks on the record. Because of Dylan's talking blues style, Subterranean Homesick Blues is often regarded as an early influence of rap music, marking yet another musical genre that Dylan ventured into, however inadvertently. Looking past the barrage of lyrical imagery in Dylan's vocal style, the album's opener simply feels like a good old jam session, with a multitude of musicians unafraid to evolve, experiment, and play as loudly as their instruments will allow. The album's third track, Maggie's Farm, continues the blues rock precedent set by Subterranean Homesick Blues, but with more relevance to the folk scene in the mid-60s. Cited by John Cohen as a retooling of the Bentley Boys' old-time tune Penny's Farm, the song is notable for being lyrically analogous to Dylan's feelings toward the folk community at the time. Much like the song Speaker, who doesn't want to work on Maggie's Farm no more, Bob Dylan did not want to be indebted to the folk world anymore. Itching to branch out and remove himself from the oppressive constraints of the quote-unquote pure folk genre, Maggie's Farm is a counterculture anthem, a personal song that works in many contexts. Perhaps most notable is Dylan's performance of Maggie's Farm at the aforementioned 1965 Newport Folk Festival, where it was the center of the evening's controversy. 
played much louder and with much more fervor than on Bringing It All Back Home, Mike Bloomfield's electric guitar reportedly upset a large section of the audience, though the venue's poor sound quality could have also contributed to the unrest. Whatever the reason, it was clear that Dylan was not interested in being a pawn in folk music's game, and his declaration of independence had never been more clear than in Maggie's Farm. Ending the album's seven-track electric side is the surreal romp Bob Dylan's 115th Dream, which opens on an acoustic outtake, with Dylan being interrupted by resounding laughter from the rest of the band. He's soon joined with a brilliant electric blues backing, and the six-and-a-half-minute epic jumps out to its roaring start, satirically alluding to Moby Dick, Christopher Columbus, and the social struggles of the U.S. in the 1960s. Any attempts to truly decode the track are ultimately futile. Dylan, aloof as ever, certainly doesn't give any concrete answers, and the magical tone of the track makes a search for any deeper interpretation pointless. Instead, Dylan's dream invites listeners to sit back, absorb the absurdity, and enjoy the surreality of it all. Perfectly fitting the overall tone of his electric blues period, Bob Dylan's 115th Dream is not one of his most famous or politically impactful songs, but its upbeat rhythms and endlessly entertaining lyrics make it stand out from a crowded pack of fantastic tunes on the record. Despite all the controversies surrounding the electric side of bringing it all back home, the album's second side is almost all acoustic, returning to the type of songs Dylan fans would have been more familiar with at the time. Dylan features four of his most acclaimed compositions on the second side, chief among them Mr. Tambourine Man, which he had performed in a workshop at the 1964 Newport Folk Festival, one year before the electrical controversy. Easily one of Dylan's most famous tracks, its lyrics match with the fantastical vibe of 115th Dream and Subterranean Homesick Blues, though its instrumentation is much more sparse, featuring only Dylan accompanying himself on his acoustic guitar and his famed harmonica perched around his neck. Filled with transcendent symbolism and ethereal imagery, Mr. Tambourine Man, like many of Dylan's other songs, allows no room for concrete answers, but encourages plenty of interpretations and analyses. In fact, the song was so impactful that the birds almost simultaneously released their abbreviated electric version, which catapulted them into stardom. That is how influential Bring It All Back Home and Dylan as a whole was and still is. It doesn't matter whether he's acoustic or electric, solo or backed by a blues band, writing protest anthems or dreamlike soundscapes. What matters is the music, the music that pioneered the folk genre and gave way for a myriad of other ambitious, rebellious, genre-defying musicians to develop their craft. In a way, one could argue that, without bringing it all back home, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, their 1970 release, could not have been made. That's all speculation, of course, but Dylan's trailblazing of the folk rock genre opened doors for many other artists to break out of the traditional folk idiom, the former Tom and Jerry not the least among them. Written almost entirely by Paul Simon while Art Garfunkel was filming the adaptation of Joseph Heller's Catch-22, the album incorporates gospel, blues, world music, pop, and folk to create a true multi-genre record that could be reductively classified as folk rock. 
but Bridge Over Troubled Water is so much more, and the intricate vocal harmonies, thought-provoking lyricism, and diversity in genre and arrangements makes this album a constantly unpredictable and enthralling listen. The record's eponymous opener, Bridge Over Troubled Water, is probably Simon and Garfunkel's most famous, and oft regarded as one of their best. The song peaked all the way at number one on the Billboard Hot 100, staying at the top spot for six weeks, selling over six million copies worldwide and topping the charts in several other countries like the UK, Canada, and New Zealand. For all the acclaim, Bridge Over Troubled Water certainly isn't a conventional folk tune. Instead, Paul Simon took inspiration from gospel music, constructing a divine piano part to accompany Art Garfunkel's lead vocals, described by Simon as being typical of the quote, white choir boy way. Whatever Simon's meaning behind that statement, it is undeniable that Garfunkel's smooth, effortless phrasing and subtle vibrato lift this song into the stratosphere, so much so that Simon was reportedly envious when seeing Garfunkel perform the song alone preceding their 1970 breakup. But more than 50 years later, Bridge Over Troubled Water remains one of the most iconic tunes not just in Simon and Garfunkel's repertoire, but in the entire American songbook, an uplifting and deeply affecting song that has been covered and twisted many times over, but never quite lifted up to the same heights that it reached on this masterful record. It's a tall order to follow a composition as iconic as Bridge Over Troubled Water, but just two songs later, the duo's rendition of Cecilia just about lives up to it. Another hit single, the song peaked at number four in the U.S. and has inspired various covers. Much like the opener, however, Cecilia does not feel much like a folk song, with Simon and Garfunkel pushing further into pop rock territory. The song could be loosely described as folk rock, as its upbeat acoustic guitar line indicates, but much like other songs of the time, it defies classification, endeavoring simply to groove, to inspire dance and goodwill. Cecilia produces a sound very much associated with the late 60s and early 70s and makes for a wonderful time capsule for any sonic enthusiast looking to discover the intoxicating sounds of a vibrant music scene, led by performers like the always brilliant Simon and Garfunkel. So far, Bridge Over Troubled Water has explored gospel, pop rock, folk rock, and, in El Condor Paz's case, world music. As the album kicks off its second side, however, we come upon the song perhaps most difficult to classify, The Boxer. The track was recorded in multiple locations, including St. Paul's Chapel at Columbia University, and reportedly took over 100 hours to record due to the high production demands required to make this five-minute epic. Simon and Garfunkel's trademark tight harmonies are on full, unabashed display here, backed by an iconic reverbed snare drum and a string orchestra that imbues the tune with a real sense of power. Its instrumentation is not its only merit, though. Simon's lyrics perfectly capture feelings of loneliness, poverty, and an overwhelming sense of despondency through both the tragic lament of the speaker and his third-person descriptions of the symbolic titular boxer. The lyrics have autobiographical significance for Simon, and the song's biblical references give it an extra sense of divinity and transcendence. Some, myself included, consider The Boxer to be Simon and Garfunkel's greatest song, produced with enough pathos to inspire endlessly, making sure that it will never, no matter how much times change, go out of fashion. That being said, times do change, as Simon and Garfunkel discovered while recording Bridge Over Troubled Water. Their relationship was quickly deteriorating, making production of the album difficult, and a split seemed imminent. Perhaps no song captured this feeling better than the record's closer, Song for the Asking. 
The closest thing the album has to a pure folk song, Song for the Asking is short, sweet, and wraps up the album effortlessly. The lyrics read as a sort of peace offering, opening the door for a future reconciliation between one of the most iconic duos in music history. That reconciliation would not come immediately, though. Shortly after the release of Bridge Over Troubled Water in 1970, Simon and Garfunkel broke up, launching two wildly different but nevertheless successful solo careers for each artist. Song for the Asking could not have been a more perfect choice to end the album and, considering what came shortly after, the musical heyday of Simon and Garfunkel. The song concludes an ambitious, genre-defying album that seems to flow from the pen to the microphone without difficulty, an important milestone in the development of folk rock and, in my mind, one of the most enjoyable and effortless albums in the idiom. Hey, it's Connor Hibbert, WICB's Jazz and Specialty Music Director. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Out to Lunch. If you have any recommendations for what albums I should look into next, shoot me an email at jazz at wicb.org. I'd love to hear from you.